Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Good morning. Good morning, family. How's it going, everybody? Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and like Joseph said, um, if you're new, this might be new to you. If you're not new, you know how this phrase ends, so I want to try this, even though it's hokey and corny. We say on Sunday mornings, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, that's pretty good. That wasn't too bad. I'm sure wherever Russ is this morning, he's, he's just shedding just one of these. It's like, why am I? I don't know what's happening. Strangely emotional. Um, all right, so uh, welcome again. Um, if you're joining us here for the first time or the third time, or you're joining us via podcast, uh, we started a sermon series at the beginning of September a few weeks ago called Sacraments. And uh, Sacraments is, uh, is sort of a um, sort of a fancy church-sounding word for a Catholic tradition, something we're borrowing and kind of reinterpreting as a connection point through which God and the divine intersect our lives, uh, break into our reality and connect us or connect with us in a meaningful and personal way, okay? Uh, One of the dictionary definitions of the word sacrament that I came across that I love is a thing of mysterious and sacred significance, a way that God speaks to us in this natural language of our known world, but in ways that are both mysterious and also sacred, unique, and uh, kind of special, set apart in some way. And when God seems to consistently use a certain means to speak to us, it seems like it would behoove us to kind of perk up and pay attention. Uh, So far, we've uh, mentioned things like pain, uh, the waters of baptism. Last week, Russ talked about the table in a really fresh and fascinating way. Go back and listen to that podcast if you you weren't here last week. Obviously, the list of things being preached on is by no means exhaustive. There are all kinds of ways in which God uh, intersects with our lives and speaks to us and communicates with us, right? But uh, these are just a few we're pointing out, whether ordinary uh, ordinary means in in our everyday lives or sort of more traditional spiritual disciplines. Um, But in all of it, there seems to be a, a kind of a consistent through line in that there is both death and resurrection present in all these things. For this is the language of God, death and resurrection. It's the fuel that the natural world runs on. The entire life cycle is predicated on this natural law, if you will. I mean, look at at the human being as an example. We, uh, at the beginning of our lifespan, we are conceived in a human body. And for that incredible miracle to happen, there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of sperm that die in order to fertilize one egg. Uh, to keep the life cycle rolling. Isn't that crazy? Much of the food we eat, whether you are vegan, vegetarian, freegan, Whole30, paleo, I don't don't know how many there are to keep track anymore. Most of the food had to uh, lose its life in some sense in order to transfer that life source to us. And one day at the end of our life cycle, every single person in this room, we will all die and we will be put in the ground and we will decompose and become food for other life forms to continue the life cycle. Not a pleasant thought to think about, and not one we often think about, which is weird, because it's like the one promise in life. 
this will all end in a sense. And the life cycle will continue, death and resurrection. We could go on for days talking about all the ways that death and resurrection plays out in our natural, our natural world, but it's self-evident, right? It's happening all around us all the time. It's the language of our natural world, and it's therefore no surprise that God speaks to us and comes to us through that same language. So today, the mysterious and sacred way through which God speaks to us and connects with us that we're going to talk about is silence. Oh, I didn't forget where I was going. I was just trying it on, seeing how, seeing how it feels. It's weird, right? It's awkward. We're going to talk about that too. We're going to talk about silence as a means of spiritual discipline, as a practice through which we see God moving and speaking, and as kind of a countercultural language that we've forgotten how to speak and may want to return to. Uh, we'll also look at some cultural norms and how uh, death and resurrection is present in silence as well. But first, in preparation for the rest of the morning, um, let's quiet our own hearts in silence for about 45 seconds, all right? Um, and uh, then I'll, I'll lead us in prayer and we'll, we'll go on. So as we sit in silence, feel free to close your eyes. Think about your breath as thoughts come to you. That's fine. Let them come. Let them go. Father, thank you for inviting us into this family. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our own lives. Thank you for the story that you're telling. As we talk about slowing down and being quiet and hearing your voice today, would you speak to us? Would you let us know how much you love us? How much grace you have for us? Thank you for who you are. Thank you for just being your sons and daughters, period. We love you. Amen. Oh, my podium shrunk. Uh, that was a little longer than 45 seconds. Um, let's, uh, let's hop into uh, the 131st Psalm here. The psalmist writes, God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart like a baby content in its mother's arms. My soul is a baby content. Wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope. Hope now. Hope always. How many of us are made uncomfortable by silence? 
How many of us were uncomfortable in that silence right there? <laughs> I was. What were you thinking? When will this be over? How long does this have to go on? Will someone please fill this silence? A lull in the conversation, a pause in the music. It's awkward, right? Uh, silence, in my experience, can either be one of two things. Uh, very serene and very peaceful, or very uncomfortable and very awkward. Why is silence so uncomfortable? Why do we squirm so much when we have to endure it? What is it bucking against and what is this internal violence we feel inside of us when we experience it? First off, I would say that one of the reasons silence can be so painful to endure in just about any setting for us is it's not part of our natural state of being anymore. It's not normal. It's like a second language that we used to be fluent in but we've forgotten how to speak it due to lack of use. How often or maybe how many minutes uh, throughout your day or your week do you think you sit in complete quiet? Or at least as much, as, um, as much complete silence as we can manufacture in a busy city context. But uh, think about it. How many minutes during your day or do you week do you think uh, you experience total silence? If you're like me, it's not very much, right? unless I'm very, very intentional about creating that space. Because it's not part of our natural state of being anymore. It's a language we've forgotten how to speak. It's really hard, really hard just to sit in silence. I tried to pay a lot of attention to this in my day-to-day -day as I was getting ready to speak today, much to my dear wife Stephanie's chagrin. It can already be a chore to get me to open up around the house. It's like, it can be like living with a hermit, seriously. Um, or a monk without the habit and the haircut. I'm one of these people who probably could sit in uncomfortable silences for longer than the next guy, but that being said, I became painfully aware of how much I really love total quiet without distraction, but how rarely I let myself experience it or force myself not to fill that space. And why the dissonance? Why that internal conflict, even for someone who really loves quiet and being by himself. I find that the times I'm most prone to distraction is when my surroundings have nothing more to offer me. Usually when I'm home alone or when I'm on the train. Uh, thing, the times when I feel like I can completely, completely check out, reach for this, reach for the remote, reach for a book, something to make me feel productive, something to fill that void. It's a second language that we've forgotten, I think, because our first language as humans, especially busy 21st century Western urban humans, is noise. Uh, when looking at the, the, the story of the Bible, the biblical narrative, you could say that one of the main, main plot points would be the human condition and how we relate to God, right? Pretty broad. And one of the things we learn about our condition very early on in the story is there's something in us that is, that is beautiful and good and made in the image of God and something also that's like a chord that's out of tune. Um, something that's kind of amiss. We use the word fallen or broken a lot to describe this. Sin. Uh, something that tends toward chaos and entropy, just like the rest of the natural world around us. And given enough time and left to our own devices, we will 
usually slide away from things like peace and quiet into noise and chaos. Introverts, extroverts, doesn't matter. Not only do we tend toward distraction, I think we're addicted to it. I like how Julia Baird put it in a recent article from Newsweek. She said, I know it sounds like the lament of the Luddite, but if generations of mystics and seekers have insisted that there's something that connects silence with the sublime, you have to wonder what we are distracting ourselves from and who we could be if every now and then we paused. But I don't think silence and quiet is something that we don't do because we don't crave it. Never hears anyone say, I just want some peace and noise, right? We recognize being at peace is akin to quelling the noise of life, and we can't have peace without a measure of quiet along with it. They go hand in hand, like PB&J or Russell and Stanley Hauerwas. <laughs> and I'm not sure that there are any more powerful ways that God speaks to us, especially today, than peace and quiet. And I'm not saying, obviously, culture is bad or there's some golden time we need to get back to when it was more peaceful or more quiet. Not at all. I think we've always been easily distracted and had a hard time with just being. But it's amazing what you're able to hear if you can stay quiet long enough. What if God was actually with us like he said he was? was so close that he even lived inside of us. And the distance we often feel is simply that we've, that we've forgotten how close he really is and forgotten to be quiet in order to remember. In the same way, what if God was speaking all the time, we're just so used to the constant noise that drowns him out that we don't even notice it anymore? It's as if a constant din is the new quiet. But let's try broadening our definition of silence here. Let's say that silence isn't just a lack of sound, but it speaks to kind of a sense of spaciousness, of margin, expansiveness, something that we all want in our work, in our schedules, in our finances, in our relationships. Without healthy marginalia, without silence, being a big part of that, it becomes impossible or really difficult to rest and rejuvenate ourselves to contemplate and meditate and listen to hear God, to be. I think we've forgotten how to speak this language because we've forgotten how to be. We've forgotten the art of just sitting and doing nothing because it feels unproductive and inefficient to just be. Right, I don't know if you've ever been caught by a roommate or a spouse or a family member or something um, coming home and you're just sitting on the couch doing nothing, uh, it's weird. They come, I've, my wife has done this before, she's come in and I'll be sitting there lost in thought or something. She's like, what are you doing? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing, I'm not, I'm not doing anything. And it's weird. It's not normal. Um, we've, uh, yeah, we've lost, we've lost the ability to just to just be, and we've replaced it with a new language, the language of noise. And similarly to how we, we're defining silence, uh, let's pull back a little bit on this idea of noise, not just a, uh, uh, or, or sorry, 
back up. Let, let's pull back on this idea of silence and talking about not just a lack of sound, like we said, but, but a spaciousness and a fullness of presence, all right? Silence as a fullness of presence. And let's also say that noise is not just the presence of sound, but in more, a more holistic sense, that it's the fullness of matter and contact, but the absence of presence. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful idea about the kingdom of heaven being, being music, and all that is not music is silence. What a powerful image that is. The Apostle Paul says that uh, in a letter to the Corinthian church that if he speaks in the most beautiful and mellifluous language but has not love in his heart, he equates it to being like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, that he's just making a really irritating noise. Um, here's what Lewis says in uh, this book he wrote called The Screwtape Letters, which I seem to keep coming back to. There's this senior demon that's talking to a pupil of his about the kingdom of their enemy, God, and this idea of all that is not music is silence. Uh, Screwtape says, this senior demon says, music and silence, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces. But all has been occupied by noise. Noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We've already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. Chilling thought. The kingdom of darkness where God's presence is said to be absent is simply occupied by noise. Kind of like what Paul was expressing to the Corinthians, where love is not, there is just an irritating sound. Where God is not, and if God is love, there's just noise. The kingdom of God is filled with music and silence. And again, not silence as a lack or emptiness, but as a fullness of presence. We signify God's withness as his presence. One of God's fundamental attributes is that he is Emmanuel, God with us. That there is a, a stooping down and a vulnerability to the God of the Christian story that is unlike any other, and therefore an intimacy to this God that is unlike any other. And to be with someone in silence is maybe the truest form of presence and quite possibly the truest test of intimacy. So where is, the, where is the death in silence, if we're talking about death and resurrection? We talk about these mysterious and sacred means, these sacraments being characterized by these elements. Especially in our day of age and entertainment and noise, silence certainly feels like death, doesn't it? Doesn't always feel like this fullness of presence. It usually feels like a lack, like an absence of something, like something's missing, because it is. It's the absence of noise that we have grown so accustomed to. We are, we're so used to being constantly entertained. And not that all entertainment is bad, of course. There is so much great television and good movies and great books out there. But if we don't learn to, to pause and be quiet every once in a while, it takes surrender and it feels like death. 
If silence is experienced fundamentally as a lack or emptiness, I think it goes to follow that this is because noise is currently our natural state of being. We don't experience silence as the fullness of presence, but the lack of noise. And not that taking vows of silence or living silent lives is, of course, what we're talking about and what we're going for here, but instead, how do we, how do we reintroduce this powerful spiritual practice into our lives again, even in small ways? How can we capitalize on opportunities for silence already present in our day-to-day lives? Let's talk about a few ways in which silence signifies both death and resurrection. One, I think practicing silence kills our pride and opens us up to surrender. Practicing silence kills our pride and opens us to surrender. Being quiet can be a powerful form of humility. We put ourselves second when we refuse to fill space that begs us to fill it and acknowledge that our voice is maybe not the most important one in the room. Practicing silence and stillness uh, pretty naturally draws us out of ourselves in the same way that prayer and meditation do. It postures us in that way. It means not filling every moment entertaining ourselves, but being intentional to create spaces that are open and free and welcoming the voice of the other, especially God's. Silence is the lack of noise, our first language, that forces us face to face with ourselves to say, I need, I am dependent, I am not self-sufficient. Consider again what the psalmist says in the text we read earlier uh, in the message translation. God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart like a baby content in its mother's arms. My soul is a baby content. Wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope. Hope now, hope always. I love that image of a baby content. My soul is a baby content. Maybe just because I have a 14-month-old daughter at home and that image is uh, burned into my head right now. But that's, what a, what a picture of utter surrender and total dependence, right? Another translation says it like this. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Not that theologizing or philosophizing are not important or don't have a key place in the mix, but there is a closeness and an intimacy with God that one can only find in pausing, in practicing rest and quiet, in trying to table all those thoughts about deep stuff when we put aside grandiose plans and things too great and too marvelous for us, again, not they don't have an important place at the table, but when we, when we hit pause on those for a second and simply wait and listen and be present with the presence of God, not just doing, but being. Like Madeline Lingle said, deepest communion with God is beyond words on the other side of silence. This is such a great reminder for me when I'm in times of doubt. To put aside, at least for the moment, all my questions and my confusions and frustrations about certain little things, certain tenets, and just be. Just be quiet and be present and let my spirit commune with my creator. 
The psalmist says, I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Our word humility derives from the Latin root humus, meaning earth. So when we talk about humility, we're talking about being down to earth, literally, or grounded. I love the way the psalmist puts it, and it's translated here. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've remained down to earth, humble. This is the byproduct of cultivating a quiet heart. An enormous part of humility is being comfortable with waiting in silence. It grounds us. It puts our feet on the holy ground of what God is up to. All we have to do is look at the Gospels as for examples of this. Jesus lived a life of true surrender and he was constantly getting away from the noise of life to be alone and to recharge and be silent before God to reestablish a connection there. If you read through the book of Mark, it seems like Jesus is always either climbing up a mountain or hopping into a boat or doing something to ditch out on the action to go and be alone and rest and recharge. And if Jesus, the God-man himself, needed to punctuate his life with silence in order to hear from and commune with God, I think we could learn to start to speak that language too, or remember how to at least. The second thing is practicing silence kills our distractions and opens us up to peace. Practicing silence kills our distractions and opens us to peace. We've talked a bit about noise already and how this is kind of our native language, how our current, uh, part of our current culture and state of being feels a lot easier to just be part of the noise. For me, anyhow, I don't know about you. We humans, we're creatures of ease and habit and we'll, we'll follow the path of least resistance every single time. But we're more than just the sum of our instincts and it's often when we rise above these basic tendencies, they were able to tap into the divine. I think this is why self-restraint and self-denial have always been a huge part of faith tradition and liturgy and spiritual disciplines. As poet Christian Wyman says, I think one of the ways that we know our spiritual inclinations are valid is they lead us out of ourselves. Again, going back to the Julia Baird quote we said earlier, generations of mystics and seekers have insisted that there's something that connects silence with the sublime you have to wonder what we are distracting ourselves from and who we could be if every now and then we paused. In all the noise of life, all of our crowded inboxes, our blaring screens, people yelling for our time and attention through all our various devices and media, what are we distracting ourselves from? What do we really have a fear of missing out on? Where is the ground of our being truly anchored? Where does our peace come from and how do we access that? While our hurried lives may make us feel fulfilled through our measures of productivity and success, and we are fulfilled through our work and we are fulfilled through doing in some senses, but true peace can only be found when we take a break from all of it and add in the balance of quiet and listening. This leads us to the last point, that practicing silence kills our anxiety and opens us up to hope. 
Practicing silence kills our anxiety and opens us to hope. Back to the end of Psalm 131. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Like a baby content in its mother's arms, my soul is a baby content. Wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope. Hope now, hope always. The psalmist, after he's cultivated a quiet heart, urges the people of God to wait with a sense of hope. Since life is so full and so busy and noisy, perhaps, it's, it's no surprise that our, our national anxiety has skyrocketed. We're more distracted, more anxious, more escapist than ever before. And so our response is to take action by slowing down, by practicing this language of surrender, of peace, and of hope. We practice silence not only because it's good for our anxiety and counteracts stress and depression, which so many studies have shown that it does. We practice silence not only because it replenishes our mental resources and actually regenerates new brain cells, which it does, which is crazy. Talk about resurrection written right into the fabric of life. We practice silence not only because it has tremendous physical and psychological benefits, but also because it gives rest to our spirits. And it does something that we can't quite put our finger on. However much the noise of the world around us whispers to us or maybe yells to us in this case, that it will give rest to our souls. We know if we've experienced it that our souls will truly find rest in nothing else than the hope we have in Jesus, amen? And we feel that hope when we sit in silence and we're present to the presence of God and we let our weary souls find rest in Christ alone. So what about when God is silent back? I'm not suggesting that silence is some magical lever that we pull to get the God jackpot or something. It's, there's no formula to this. Sometimes when we show up to meet with God, we experience silence on the other end of the line too. And I don't believe this, is, this means that he isn't there or he doesn't care, but, but I do think this is why we call these practices disciplines, because sometimes they are just that, disciplines. There's something we show up to and bring our true selves to the table, and sometimes we don't feel it. And sometimes we don't hear the voice of God in the silence. And that's okay. Because it all takes practice and it's all part of the process of growing in our relationship with God. Another thing uh, the poet Christian Wyman said that's always stuck with me is, faith is often faithfulness to a time when we once had faith. Faith is often faithfulness to a time that we had faith which is encouraging to me in times of doubt as well. Remember the two parts of the definition sacrament, sacred and mysterious? There's tremendous mystery here, obviously. And there will be questions. This journey through faith that we're on together isn't about getting all our questions answered. I think it's a little more about being invited to participate in the mystery with God. Throughout human history, the narrative has told us that true freedom lies in the service to self. 
but the posture of silence is about preference to the other, even if and especially when that other is God. We call silence a sacrament because through the ages, saints and mystics and skeptics and people just like you and me have quieted themselves before the presence of God and found God close to them. The practice of silence teaches us that ultimately the world will not stop turning if we do nothing, which I often feel like it might. And very close to the idea of Sabbath, this is what the sacrament of silence does. Through the doing of nothing, just being, we make ourselves available. We open our ears and we open our hands to the force in the universe that created us as human beings, not units of production. Remember, we believe in a story that somehow started with a good creator speaking or whispering or maybe singing those words, let there be. I'm going to invite the band up at this point. Where do we need to create space for the Spirit to move in our lives? Where do we need to create some of that margin? Where do we need to interject some quiet to cut the noise, both actual and metaphorical, to create that breathing room through which God can speak to us and ground us in a hope that is anchored in Jesus alone and His gospel of grace? I just live my life too loud most of the times. Where can we start small? Can we start by taking five minutes in the quiet of the morning after we wake up to sit in that peace and wait for God to speak? Maybe it's being intentional before you go to sleep at night in that silence in the dark. Maybe instead of plugging in on the train or the cab or whatever your commute might be, um, to sit in quiet and refuse to distract yourself. It's going to be difficult and it's going to be weird, especially at first. And listen to what God might say. Start by being intentional in the, the quiet moments that you're already given throughout your day. Like we say a lot about, or like we say a lot uh, about a lot of areas in our community. It's not about doing more. It's not about adding more to our plates. It's just about being intentional with the things that we're already given and the spaces that are already in front of us. So start there. Practice it. These are spiritual practices. It's not about doing it right. Bear the awkwardness. Try speaking the language. You'll fumble through it. That's okay. See how God might speak back. And fair warning, it probably won't be how you think it will be or what you expect, but listen all the same. If the gospel means anything, it means that we don't have to do more. It just means we have to respond. We have to surrender. God is a God of yes, and he asks us to say yes back. I think we'd be amazed at what we could hear if we just we're quiet long enough to make space for it. What are we distracting ourselves from? And who could we be if every now and then we paused? For this is how God speaks through death and resurrection. 
and how fitting, how fitting that when God came to us in the flesh, that he reached out and grabbed us and drew, him, drew us to himself through that same mode of death and resurrection in the person of Jesus. And that he still does it. And that even up until the very end of Jesus' life, that his surrender and his peace and his hope were what fueled his silence even unto death. A silence that echoed his prayer in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. Would you pray with me? Father, I don't know how to do this. Life is so full and there are lots of distractions. Helps to be present to what is, front, what, what is in front of us and as we, as we quiet our hearts before you, we remember. We remember who we are in you and we remember who you are. That you are like a good father who loves to give good gifts to his kids. That you are faithful and we remember that even when we feel faithless. That we remain faithful at least to a time that we had faith. That we look back and remember on times that we've experienced you, that our reality was changed, that something was made different that we can't deny. As we sing back to you the truth of who you are and as we leave this place and eat together, go into our weeks, go about our work, Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are a with us God who constantly speaks to us through death and resurrection. Even in the mundane things like pain and sharing a meal and awkward silences and conversation. Remind us to make room. There's always room at your table. We love you a lot. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.